0: If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 57. This morning we are finishing our sermon series that we've called Multiply, Making uh, Disciples Like Jesus. And this series has been the handmaiden of our Sunday morning discipleship class, where we've not only been trying to think through the theology of gospel growth, but also offer some practical tools and tips on doing that. And that will continue for the next few weeks, even as this Sunday morning series comes to an end. Here we've tried to distinguish what we're doing from the Sunday morning discipleship class by looking specifically at Jesus as the master disciple maker. We've sought to understand what he did, why he did it, in calling people to himself and preaching the gospel to them and raising them up as servants that they might go out and make disciples as well. And so we've tried to look at the principles that we can glean for us today as we seek to evangelize, encourage, and equip others as disciples of Jesus Christ. And as we come to the end of this series, what we want to do is actually be challenged to go and make disciples. Now, some of you are already doing that. We heard a wonderful testimony about it uh, yesterday at our prayer service. Uh, We hope you'll be able to come to the next one if you weren't there to hear such testimonies and intercede for one another before God together. Others of you, though, probably are not making disciples as we ought Either way, I hope all of us can be motivated and even encouraged by the realistic picture that Jesus provides for us in these verses from the end of Luke chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. Now as with all of our our text in this series, we aren't looking uh, to give a straight exposition and, and think of it in terms of all that it has to say, but rather we're looking at it through the lens of this question of discipleship. And another reason why we're not going to look at everything that Luke has to say in these verses is because some of you might remember we just finished not that long ago a series on Luke. And even though we looked at this passage in November of 2014, uh, I'm guessing that most of you don't remember that and it'll be worth our time to uh, dwell on these verses again this morning. So as we think about this, we want to be careful not to read something into the text but to pull out the specific themes that we can glean about this topic of discipleship. And so as we seek to do that together, I invite you to follow along, uh, beginning at uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 57, and as, as I read from God's holy and inspired word. We read of Jesus and his disciples, and Luke says that as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. May God bless the reading of his word. Jesus encounters three different people in the first half of these verses that we'll be looking at, and notice that the common word in each of these little vignettes is the word follow. Uh, We find it in verses 57, 59, and 61. Sometimes it's a command, sometimes it's a commitment, but it's what holds these verses together. In other words, Luke is helping us to understand what it means to follow Jesus. What does it look like in our lives? What are the expectations for us? And if we're not careful, uh, we'll, we'll misunderstand that these verses are helpful to us because sometimes we think of following Jesus as if we're doing Him a favor. All right, Jesus will be part of your team. I'll bring all my resources. I'll bring all that I can do, and, I, and, and I'm going to do this for you. But just understand, uh, I've got some things that I want for myself as well. We think of discipleship, of following Jesus as if it's some kind of trade negotiation, but... Jesus makes clear that it's quite the opposite of that. There are no negotiations. There are no terms of agreement. Jesus says, I lead and you follow. And therefore, Luke wants to make clear to us the cost of following Jesus and the fact that we must count the cost before we make that commitment. We must consider what it means, what it's going to cost us to follow Jesus as his disciples. And that's especially true as we think about living as his disciples engaged in disciple making, seeking to proclaim the gospel and bringing others to maturity in him. And so as we are called to join Jesus in his mission, this passage shows us how we ought to live and what it will look like if we're seeking to make disciples as he's commanded. First, we will live as committed disciples. We will live as committed disciples. In some ways, each of these scenes is really just about the same thing. It's about the commitment necessary for those who are going to follow Jesus. But each of these encounters also gives us a slightly different shade or slightly different nuance of what it means uh, to follow him. And truth be told, uh, we've got some bullet points here, but in some ways, these are almost interchangeable with one another, all right? So if you're looking at one and thinking, I think that one would better be labeled sacrifice. Well, you might be right. Uh, Nevertheless, we want to think through these things together this morning. What we see first is that we must follow despite hardship. We must follow despite hardship. Luke says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That is a bold pronouncement before Jesus. And uh, I've heard similar, though much less bold, pronouncements as a pastor. In fact, uh, very often in the history of this church, there have been people that have been here, first time visitors, and uh, at the end of the service, they'll come up to me and say, I just love this service. I'm joining this church. And at first, I was like, great, we'll see you next week. And they never showed up. And then I noticed a pattern. Every first time visitor who came here was a, a, a part of our church service and would say to me at the end, this was great. I'm going to join this church. They never came back. What I also discovered is that most of the people were people that have been raised in church, have been out for several years. And what they came and got was a glimpse of what God wanted their life to be. They heard God speaking through his word. They saw the loving fellowship of his people. And they thought, yes, I want that. But in their bold proclamation, they had not actually thought Long term, what is it going to mean to commit myself to Christ and his people? What's it going to mean on Sunday mornings when I've been up too late on Saturday nights, when I can't go off on vacation all the times that I want to, when I can't do all the things that I would normally do on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to actually commit to the fellowship of God's people? It was a bold pronouncement without any forethought of what it actually was going to entail. And that's exactly what we see here in this passage. This person says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And how does Jesus respond? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is giving this guy a reality check. He recognizes this guy is making a bold claim, but he doesn't really understand what he's saying. So Jesus gives him a glimpse into his own life. He wants to make sure that he understands that following him is not a pathway to fame or ease or wealth or comfort. More than likely, that's what this guy was looking for. At this point in the narrative, uh, uh, in, in Jesus' life, there is a huge swell of popularity among the people. There, there are crowds following Jesus. There, there, there are people that want to be associated with him for all of the things that will come with that popularity. But Jesus knows this man's heart. And he wants to be clear that following him is not going to lead to comfort. It's going to lead to the cross it's interesting that Luke says this man comes to Jesus' and his disciples while they were going along the road. Now, if you're tracking through Luke's gospel, you realize that not long before this, Jesus has made the determination to go to the last time to Jerusalem. And for him, that means death on a cross. And so as they are all along this road to Jerusalem, to the cross, to Jesus' death, That's when this man comes and makes this bold pronouncement. And what Jesus wants to do by highlighting the hardships and the homelessness of his own life is that this is indicative of his ministry and an indicator of what was to come. But it also sets the temperature for the lives of his disciples. Jesus was clear from the outset of his ministry. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, of course, Jesus is a savior who provides salvation by way of his own death. He died a real physical death under the wrath of God towards the people of God. And being raised back to life now, having atoned for their sin on the cross, he calls all men everywhere to follow him, to follow him even in death. Not that we would get on a Roman cross, not that we would actually sacrifice our lives in the same way that he did to save ourselves, but rather we would die to ourselves our wants, our desires, our ideas about life, our idolatry. In other words, that we would live a life of sacrifice following after the pattern of Christ himself. Jesus died to free us from our sins and it's slavery there. And he calls us to continue the trajectory of that life. Now that we have been freed not to dabble in sin, not to tinker around with our own thoughts, but to make a decisive cut with our old life, to put those things to death that we might find abundant life in him. Why does he call us that? Call us to do that, to take up our own cross and follow him? For that very reason, that we will find life abundant and free and joyful living under the lordship of Christ, rather than seeking to try to live under our own lordship. All of this Is part of following him even in hardship, but we also see that we will follow in with sacrifice. We will follow with sacrifice. After one man promises to follow Jesus, Luke says that Jesus looks at another and extends an invitation. Now I say man because that's just default to how I talk. But you realize Luke doesn't tell us man or woman in any of these things, so don't feel like oh these are all knucklehead guys nothing to do with me. No, that this, is, this is putting all of us in the position of these individuals and asking, is this how I would respond to Jesus? So another said to him, verse 59, or rather Jesus said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, at first glance, Jesus seems very anti-family. But let's keep a couple of things in context here. First of all, the larger context just of Jesus' life and ministry shows us that Jesus was not inherently anti-family. Uh, elsewhere, he will castigate some of the Pharisees who tried to use serving God and, and setting apart uh, finances as, as to give us an offering as an excuse not to honor their father and mother, not to help them in old age. And he said, that's terrible. He says, that, that's not the way things are meant to run. You're supposed to honor your father and mother. Second, though, we need to consider the cultural context. In Jesus' day, this idea of a, of a burial process was huge. You know, today, it's, it's very quick. Uh, the body goes to the morgue. Uh, the, the, there's a process of embalming that takes place. There's a funeral shortly after that, and they're in the ground. It's within anywhere from three to five days, usually. That's not the case in the ancient Near East. After death, the body would be anointed, it would be put in a tomb, and it was left there to decay. Afterwards, the bones would be collected and put into a little ossuary box and then laid into the family tomb. Likewise, history tells us the father was sick to the point of death. The son wouldn't even be talking to Jesus. He would be expected to stay at his father's side up until the moment of death. Now, knowing all that creates a very different picture of this man, his situation, and Jesus' response. It's not like today, and Jesus looks and says, follow me. It's like, well, I need to go bury my father tomorrow. Can, can you wait? And Jesus is like, no, leave now. It's not like that at all. This guy is looking for an excuse to distance himself from the commitment that Jesus is calling to, not just with 24 hours or even two or three days, but perhaps as much as a year or more lifetime. And so Jesus says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, how can the dead bury the dead? Well, remember that the Bible speaks of two kinds of death. The first is obvious. It's physical death. The heart no longer beats. The lungs no longer breathe. The brain no longer thinks. This is the kind of death that leads people to crying over your body and putting you into the ground. But there's also a spiritual death. In this kind of death, the body continues to live. Sometimes it lives really, really well. But you are dead to the things of God. You care little to nothing at all for him. You may talk of God. You may think of God. You may pay lip service to God. You may even be here at this church service. But God makes no difference in your life. How you live and raise your children and talk to your spouse and spend your money, none of those things are affected by God. You are, biblically speaking, far worse than physically dead. You are spiritually dead. So Jesus calls this man to follow him. And he says, well, well, wait, Let, let me bury my father. And he says, leave the dead to bury the dead. In other words, let the spiritually dead worry about burying the physically dead. Or do not let your life be driven by the thoughts, opinions, and expectations of those who are not alive to the things of God. Sometimes our friends and our family, especially our parents, will leave an indelible mark in our lives. We ought to be rightly thankful to God for them. But if they are spiritually dead, We cannot let them hinder us from following Jesus. We cannot we we, we cannot allow them to stop us from doing what Jesus calls us to do. We must sacrifice ourselves to those things and live according to Christ's calling. That means spending time and giving resources, skipping maybe even family events in ways that make no sense to them, that might even frustrate and anger them, but demonstrate our commitment to make disciples. I'm not saying that we should be unloving or unkind or intentionally antagonistic to our family. But when they complain, when they correct you or try to get you to change your mind about fundamental ways of living out the Christian life, what are you going to do? Are you going to capitulate and allow them to be your king? Or are you going to follow Christ as your king and allow him to lead you and guide you and tell you how you ought to live? That's the choice that we have to make in following Jesus That means we'll have to live a life of sacrifice. There will be things that must be given up. Not just sinful things that we ought to be giving up anyway, but sometimes good and helpful things, but things that have no, no understanding of God's things. We understand that that sacrifice is not easy, but Jesus is worth it. And the life he calls us to is worth it. Following Jesus means hardship and sacrifice. And Jesus also expects us to follow in faithfulness. He expects us to follow in faithfulness. We see this in verses 61 and 62. There, Luke says, Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Once again, you can't even say goodbye to your family. Well, once again, remember, we're dealing here with specific people in specific situations with specific thoughts. And Jesus knows the heart of this person challenges their assumptions and their struggles. We know Jesus knows this by how he responds. He says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom. Now, what's the best way to plow a field? Well, I have no idea. The only field that I've plowed is my yard when I put grass down. And uh, I'm not even sure I did it the best way you were supposed to. But I have friends who have been farmers or have had family that are farmers, and one of the interesting things is even before I was aware as a kid of this passage, I had heard people talk about plowing. In particular, one story that's always stuck with me was a pastor that I had when I was a kid, and I can remember being probably six or seven or eight and him talking about being about the same age and being allowed to ride on a tractor at some relative's farm. I don't know if it was an uncle or a grandfather, but... uh, uh, part of the reason why that sticks in my head now is pretty funny. He, uh, he was about 50, I guess, maybe, and just had a really thick, completely uh, silverish white hair. And in my little kid mind, I remember envisioning him as a seven-year-old boy with silverish white hair riding on that tractor. And now it's a silly thought, but this, that, this caused this story to stick in my mind for that reason. And he said that he put him up on this tractor and he had the plow behind him and he said, just drive it straight, Well, again, this is the difference between farm life, city life, old time life, and modern life. You would never put, for the most part, a seven-year-old boy on a tractor and say, hey, just go for it. Uh, Especially the old ones where all the blades were all open and flying everywhere. Uh, But that's exactly what this kid did. And he got yelled at because he wanted to see the plow at work. So he kept turning around doing this, wanting to see the plow. Well, what happened when he's doing that? As he's turning around, he's twisting his whole body and the tractor is turning, And so rather than these nice, even rows in which seed was going to be planted, he had these serpentine zigzags, looked like giant snakes moving through the field. So this relative kept yelling at him, Glenn, look ahead, look ahead, keep your eyes forward, keep your eyes forward. And that's very much the temptation that this guy is struggling with, not to keep his eyes forward, but to keep looking back, to keep looking back. And what's going to happen is a life that is not consistent, that is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Jesus says that if we are living for Him, we keep looking forward, not back to our old life, not back to the way that we once lived or to the way that the world lives. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Those are striking and powerful words. They strike at some of us today. Some of us were saved at an older age and we had a lifestyle and a mindset that was already set against the things of God. We might not have known, we might not have said we hate God, but if we're not following him, then our life is inherently at enmity with him. We are are butting heads with him, vying for authority and leadership over our life. And the gospel came to you in that state. And like a sledgehammer began breaking up the hardened concrete of your heart and of your mind. But the temptation is still there to look back To think back to the way it used to be. To think of your old life and maybe even go with your old friends to your old haunts and be engaged in the same old sins. The the temptation is is there to not cut the rope fully from what was before. Such people deserve our attention and need to hear the warning of this passage. Jesus says they are not fit for the kingdom. I read that and I don't think he's merely saying they ought to live differently. I think he's saying they will not be in the kingdom. For those who vacillate one foot in the world and one foot in heaven their whole life, it reveals on the last day probably that they've never really actually made a commitment for Christ. They've never really put their faith in Him and sought to follow Him as their disciple. So Luke is showing us the words of Jesus that part of following Jesus following Him faithfully, keeping our eyes fixed on the promises of the gospel, always seeking to put one foot forward, continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now to be clear though, Tim Keller is absolutely right to remind us that absolute commitment is not the same as absolute obedience. No one can obey absolutely. Everyone is a sinner, but absolute commitment means a willingness, he says, to abdicate the throne of your life, a willingness to take all conditions off of your allegiance to him. I think that's what, exactly what Jesus is getting at here. In the end, through these encounters, Luke shows us that following Jesus as a disciple is about more than just believing certain truths. Those truths are essential. We confessed some of those truths together this morning. But those truths are combined with a lifestyle that shows an obvious and costly allegiance to our Savior. When we follow Jesus, no one else ought to get in the way. Jesus calls us to follow Him as committed disciples so that we can fulfill our purpose as commissioned disciples as commission's disciples. This connection is clear, I think, because right after these expectations of commitment are laid out by Jesus, we see him sending out 72 disciples on mission. That's how chapter 10 begins. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, remember, these 72 are beyond the 12. In the beginning of chapter 9, we saw Jesus sending out the 12, those that would be the apostles. He sent them, and now He is sending more. And I'm highlighting that distinction because I want us to see that these aren't just some kind of leading disciples. These aren't some kind of level of, of maturity that we have yet to reach. These aren't just really committed people. They're all of us. They're just everyday disciples that are commissioned, that are sent out by Jesus. Commissioned specifically to do two things. First of all, to labor in preaching. To labor in preaching. In verse 2, Jesus talks about laborers going into the harvest field. He uses the imagery of a worker in the field to his commissioned disciples. Disciple making is work. It's working, it's laboring for the harvest of souls. But how do we know specifically it involves preaching? That doesn't seem to be there in verse one. Well, we can do two things. Number one, I think we can make an excellent logical argument from the rest of the Bible, but we don't need to. We actually do see it right here in the the immediate context. Back up a few verses, we saw Jesus commanding someone, follow me. And I remember he wanted to go first bury his father. And what did he say? Leave that behind. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So Jesus is equating, or at the very least strongly associating, following him with proclaiming the kingdom. And so that's part of our task, our labor in disciple making. Uh, What is that kingdom message? What is that that we preach? It's the same thing that Jesus preached, the same thing the apostles preached, as what the 72 preach, as we see in just a few verses. Peace with God in his kingdom, the repentance of sin and faith in Christ. Again, we see that at the very outset of Jesus' ministry and that is a consistent message throughout the Gospels. And we've said it several times over these last weeks as well as previous years. Maybe you're getting tired of hearing it, but we just want to make sure that we're clear. If you aren't proclaiming Christ, and that doesn't mean standing behind a pulpit, if you are not speaking God's word of the Gospel to individuals, then you're simply not making disciples. You might be doing other things. You might be supporting disciple-making. You might be doing amazing things like showing love and performing acts of mercy. But you're not bringing anyone to maturity to Christ unless the Word of God is on your lips, moving from your mind and heart prayerfully into the mind and heart of someone else. That is Paul's argument in Romans 10, that God speaks through His Word in such a way that faith is created and knows that here. So do you want to build up someone's faith? Do you want to bring them from from eternal darkness into eternal light? Then you will open your mouth and you will proclaim God's word to them. We labor in preaching and obedience to Jesus. We should also labor in prayer. We should also labor in prayer. Disciple-making disciples... or or excuse me, disciples make disciples by preaching Christ. And then they pray for God to raise up others as well. Look at verse two. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. What does that mean? That means there is a huge field out there. There's not like 10 disciples among a million and we have to go and try and figure out where they're at. Needles and haystacks. No, what does he say? There is a huge number that he is desiring to bring in. But is the 50 of us here today going to get it all done? Just the tri cities alone? Probably not. And so, what ought we to do? We ask our Heavenly Father to to send and to give the very thing that we need more workers. Jesus says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, what do you do when the laborers are few? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. This is the prayer just as much for the nations as it is for our neighborhoods. This is a prayer for missionaries who go out from us as well as for members who live together with us. This is a prayer that we can pray for one another sitting together in this room. Week by week, I want to think through your faces or page through the membership directory. And I want to pray something like this. Oh, Lord of the harvest, send your people as laborers into the harvest field. Help them to love their neighbor as themselves, to be compelled by the love of Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ, appealing to sinners to be reconciled to him. Season their speech with the salt of grace and give them clarity and boldness that they may speak of the gospel as they ought. At home, at work, and around town, send them out and open doors that they may give an answer for the hope that is in them. That's the kind of prayer that we ought to be praying for one another as much as we pray for God to raise up and send missionaries to continue to go to the ends of the earth. So as we stand now, At the end of these five weeks of this sermon series, there is one overriding application that I want to make absolutely clear to you. And that is this, make disciples, make disciples, do it despite hardship and sacrifice and with faithfulness, do it through preaching and prayer, make disciples, evangelize, encourage and equip people to maturity in Christ for the glory of Christ. And even though we've got things going on in Sunday school, I do not want you to walk out of here wondering, how do I actually do that? Or how do I have a plan to do that? So what I want to do during this kind of application time as we finish up the sermon is walk you through two tools that you have in your bulletin that will help direct your efforts towards disciple making. The first is on the back of the sermon note sheet. It's the mission-minded worksheet. This is uh, the first thing that we're going to take a look at. First of all, notice how it's laid out. Beginning at the left and moving across the page to the right, we see what it looks like for a person to move from being lost in sin to save in Christ and matured until the Lord's return. That process is divided up into three large categories that we've been talking about and have been the focus of our sermons over the last few weeks, evangelism, encouragement, and equipping. But there's also then that kind of further breakdown of categories as well. and Let me just walk through these with you so you're absolutely clear on, on what we're talking about here with these terms. First of all is raising awareness. Now, what is this? This means um, an unbeliever who has had his or her first exposure to Christianity and possibly their need of a Savior or the existence of Christ's church. In other words, uh, they've gone through their whole life perhaps not knowing anything about Jesus, not knowing anything about Christianity, and suddenly, boom, they're aware of its existence. Uh, It could even be something ridiculous like a television program, but nevertheless, they are made aware of the existence of Jesus Christ and his church. Then there is initial contact that involves actually talking with a Christian or perhaps coming to a service like this with a group of Christians. They're perhaps even reading the Bible for the first time as they get desperate in a hotel and lo and behold, there are the beautiful Gideons who've laid that book in the nightstand next to them. After that is building relationships. This describes something of of more intentionality. Here the believer, the Christian, is laboring in friendship with an unbeliever where the gospel is adorned by the believer with a godly lifestyle and a loving attitude. Understand, this does not save anyone. This is what we often used to call pre-evangelism. Evangelism. You have to actually get to sharing Christ before someone will become a Christian and experience salvation. And that's the the fourth thing across that grid here, sharing Christ. This is evangelism proper. Uh, You are walking that person through scriptures. You, You are just quoting them from memory. You are reading a tract with them or doing a Bible study with them. But you are actively sharing Christ with an unbeliever. They're hearing about the God who created them, about this, their own sin which separates them from that God, about the Savior who offered His life for them and their necessary response of repentance and faith. Then there's follow-up. If that person moves from just having Christ shared with them to believing in Christ, they, they become a believer Then you move from evangelism to encouragement. And the first thing you do to encourage them is to do follow-up with them. This is the coming alongside a new believer, explaining to them not only the basics of biblical doctrine, but how to actually live the Christian life. How do you do what Jesus says and abide in his word? How do you abide with Christ? Through scripture and prayer, you're helping them make a good start in the Christian life. Then comes nurture, that kind of lifelong effort at helping faith grow in another believer through loving correction and comfort by the prayerful speaking of God's word. Then comes equipping. And there's two parts here. First of all, it's being trained. That means you are receiving instruction in theology and ministry skill from someone else for a specific ministry of the church or to unbelievers. On the other end is training. You're the one giving instruction in theology and ministry skills to someone else. Now, if you're a Christian here... You need to use this tool to think about what are you involved with? Who are you involved with? What are you actually doing when it comes to disciple making? Usually the first time you look at a, a thing like this, you realize everything that you're doing is clumped into one or two, maybe even three things, and that's it. And what we're wanting to do is to, is to see a kind of full-bodied approach to discipleship so that, so that things are going on across that spectrum there. If we're going to be serious and systematic, then we need something, some kind of a tool. Maybe you don't want to use this. That's fine. But we need some kind of a tool to be honest with ourselves and evaluate how we're obeying Christ's command. So either today or after Rock the Block or whatever, whenever you have find the time, sit down and on that left column that says ministry or person, uh, you write down all the things or all the people that you're involved with. And then you just go across and you put a check mark or a circle or some kind of fancy star, whatever little icon you like, in the box where that follows, right? So, um, so you're involved in Rock the Block. What are you doing in Rock the Block? Uh, are, are you just part of building relationships? Is that, is that all that you do there? Then put that down. Uh, you have a next-door neighbor who's a lost person. Maybe you've never even introduced yourself to them. And so uh, you don't even know where they're at. Just put down there, initial contact or something, where you're thinking, I need to go and and, and do that. I haven't done that yet. Or maybe even a question mark under uh, raising awareness. Do they even know who Jesus is? But you go down through there and then you figure out where you're at, and that will help you understand where you need to go next. What you need to do to be better at disciple making. Are you a great relationship builder, but never get to the gospel? Are you great at sharing the gospel, but never take time to disciple a new believer? Are you willing to speak in the lives of others to encourage them, but always unwilling to let someone equip you for more specific and greater ministry effectiveness? Fill this out, think about where you need to be, and then use the second item, the little half sheet, to figure out a plan for where to go. Uh, This is just simply called a a, a people list grid. Instead of having a to-do list, you've got a people list. And what you're doing here is helping you work out the gaps that may exist and living out a fully developed disciple-making plan. This is where you think through, okay, how do I actually go about doing what I need to do next? You're looking at what you laid out in that mission-minded list, and you see, here's what I need to be doing. And now you start thinking about how you can do it. So for example, let's put this in, in practical terms. Say you're like uh, one of the members in our church and you work with a handful of young guys who know nothing about God, care nothing about God, and are just living for themselves. You talk with them a little bit. You have a friendship with them, uh, but you've never gotten close to the gospel with them. What, what are you going to do? Uh, well, you can list their names uh, individually on that mission-minded worksheet under pre-evangelism. Uh, you've met with them. You're, you're, you're building a relationship with them. Now, now you need to go farther. So you can do a couple of things. You could just get all those guys together and say, hey, we're going to do a Bible study together at, at lunch at work. Well, that might work. But maybe, maybe you want to start small. And you say, God, just give me one or two of those guys. Just give me one or two of them that I can start deepening my conversations with them that, that, I, that I, can, I can intentionally start getting to spiritual things in that conversation. So you write down their name, you write down what you want to do, and then you're going to write down how, what you're going to actually do, how you're going to go about doing it. You've got the people, you've got their names down, you've got the purpose, intentional gospel conversations, and then the plan. What are you actually going to do to make that happen? Okay. So you might write down Monday morning weekend talk. When everyone's talking on Monday morning, hey, how was your weekend? What'd you do? You have an intention in your mind, you're gonna talk about church. You're gonna talk about your community group. You're gonna talk about whatever you heard from this pulpit or talked about in class or studied on Sunday night. That's what you're gonna make a point of talking about. Not in like a way that you're gonna like say, all right, for the next 30 minutes, I'm gonna outline you everything that I heard on Sunday. That's probably not the best thing. But you might say something like, Oh man, I just was reminded this week uh, from a wonderful passage out of uh, the Bible about how much God loves us despite the fact that we don't love him and we are rebels against him. That'll start a conversation really quickly, won't it? Or you might put news story comments. Everybody talks about the news, right? This is going on, that's going on. What do you think about that? As Christians, we're not political pundits. Okay, did you know that? We don't just think like a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or, or, you know, Green Party, wherever you're at on that list. No, we think like a Christian. That means we're going to transcend those party distinctions and we're going to have a unique biblical worldview on any event going on. Put your two cents in there. Don't just talk about something as a gun owner or as someone who's pro-life. Talk about the events as someone who is a Christian. I believe that God thinks this about the issue. And that's why I think that way as well. Or maybe you just need to baby step it and you just write down, leave my Bible on my desk and read it during lunch. Someone's going to ask you about it and you'll be able to start a conversation. These are just some ideas on how to utilize these tools. And you might be thinking, boy, this sounds like a lot of work, but the, you know, the old saying is true. If you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. If you don't have something down in your mind, in your heart, on paper, some level of accountability, you're just not going to do it because we're fearful. We're fearful of rejection. We're fearful, fearful of people not liking us. We're fearful of people rejecting Christ and us feeling like we did something wrong. And so we need something that's going to help us cross that pain line, get past the fear, and get on to viewing people like Jesus did as a field ripe for harvest, needing to hear about the amazing love of Christ who brings them forgiveness and freedom from their sin. No one just starts into a robust disciple-making lifestyle. We need to make a plan to be prayerfully disciplined to carry it out. Sharing the gospel, seeking to call people to faith in Christ for the salvation of their souls, speaking God's word for ongoing growth and edification of God's people here at this church, spending time investing in the believer or allowing someone to invest in you for training and greater effective ministry in Christ. This is the task of disciple-making that Christ calls us to. It is, as we've been told many times by many different people, the standing marching orders of the church from Matthew 28 to make disciples. So let us joyfully follow Christ on that path. Father, we are so thankful for our forgiveness in life in Christ. I pray that perhaps those that are here and this whole idea of disciple-making is foreign to them. But Father, they're hearing about Jesus who died to save them and they find that so attractive and appealing. Perhaps they've never thought about the gospel. They've never thought about Jesus who offered his life for them and who came back to life and calls them to follow him. God, I pray that you would open their minds and hearts to understand that gospel, to seek out more of it, that you would put people in their life that they might come to faith and believe. And Father, that you would excite us about the task of disciple-making. Father, we can do and labor for so many things, so many good things in this world, but Father, here we labor for eternity. We we, we get to see ourselves being tools used by you to actually change and shape and reform sinful souls into the glorious image of Christ. Father, may that bring joy and excitement to our lives. And Father, may you give us the grace that we need to faithfully pursue this task no matter how small or how large our ministry might be. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.